Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Last fall, a Massachusetts woman found herself facing an unexpected temptation. Uh, she had just recei- received a, a delivery of boxes. FedEx had come to her house and brought a whole bunch of boxes, and she was expecting this. I don't know if she ran a home business or what, but for some reason she was getting a, a shipment with a lot of boxes in it. And, uh, and so she started to, you know, she signed for it and started to go through the boxes one at a time, and everything was as she expected it to be. But then she came to a box that was really heavy, just unexpectedly heavy. And so she, you know, kind of curious, opened it up and looked inside, and to, to her surprise, she saw that the box was full of scratch tickets. Scratch tickets, like, like those lottery tickets you see at convenience stores. I'm sure we don't bother buying these things, but you see them at convenience stores. Uh, you know, you, you scratch off and scratch tickets. The box was full of, of scratch tickets. They're all like wrapped and ready to go kind of a thing. Uh, at first, she thought it was a joke. She thought maybe one of her friends was pranking her or something. But right on top was like an invoice and a receipt, and the receipt explained that this was $20,000 worth of scratch tickets. That's what she was holding in her hands. Uh, Well, uh, thankfully, she was a sensible woman, and she resisted whatever temptation she might have felt to open up and start scratching away at the tickets. Uh, She instead kind of tried to figure out what was going on, and she flipped it over, and she saw the mailing label, and that's when she realized these were not intended for her. Uh, The delivery guy had made a mistake. This box was supposed to go to a convenience store that was there in the same town. And so she made some phone calls, called the delivery company that came back. They got them all's well, that ends well, and those boxes went, that box went off to where it was supposed to go. Some temptations are easy to overcome, and I, I think that one would be a, an illustration like that. She, she knew, you know, whatever temptation she felt, <clears throat> she knew that delivery driver was going to figure out his mistake. He'd figure it out pretty quick, and he'd come back looking for him. And so that was an easy temptation to overcome. Other temptations, though, are not so easy. Uh, there's not that level of accountability, and so some temptations are hard to overcome. And, and that's why this passage and what we looked at, what we're looking at today, what we looked at last week, it's why this stuff is so helpful for us. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that we've already looked at uh, this passage once. We went through and uh, we talked about uh, four tips. That's what we did last week. We talked uh, really more of, a, of an us-centered way to look at the passage. And so we went through the passage. We looked at the example of Jesus, but we asked, what can we learn from the example of Jesus for how to resist temptation? And so we had four tips, four tips for resisting our own temptations. Uh, Today, uh, as promised, I want to go through the same passage again, and I want to ask a different question this time. I want to ask what this passage teaches us about Jesus. Uh, What's what's he experiencing? What's he going through in this passage? And we'll still apply it to ourselves. We'll still ask, what do we learn for our own lives? But what is this passage teaching us about Jesus? And what it teaches us, quite simply, is that he overcame. Jesus overcame temptation, and therefore he can help us. And so if you like to take notes, Jesus can help us overcome temptation because he already conquered temptation himself. Uh, that's what we see here in the, in the gospel account of the, the wilderness temptation of Jesus. He did not just squeak by. He didn't just eke it out. He conquered 
temptation. He was victorious over it. And because he was, now he can help his people. He can help his followers do the same. I want to do a couple of things with our time this morning. Uh, So we're going to break this into two parts. Uh, The first part is that I want to work through a theological question. There's a theological issue that this passage raises. Maybe you've wondered about this, maybe you haven't, but either way, we're going to address it. We'll take a few minutes to, to understand a theological issue here. And then after we do that, we will finally go through the actual temptations. We'll, we'll go through each one of these individually, and we'll talk about three common temptations, three common temptations that Jesus overcame. And I'm calling them common because they are. We'll, we'll see that we experience these exact same temptations Jesus experienced. The details are a little different. You know, the, some of the, the specifics were unique to him because of who he is. But uh, we experience the same temptations he does. And so we'll talk about three common temptations that Jesus overcame, and with his help, uh, we can overcome them too. So part one here, let's, let's start with these questions, right? So two theological questions, and they're related questions. You could call it one with two parts. You could call it two. We'll call it two. Uh, we're we're going to answer these questions. Before I get into them, let me just acknowledge uh, that these might seem unnecessarily theoretical to some people. And so if you, if you're not really, if theology doesn't appeal to you, you know, you you know, it's important, but it doesn't really appeal to you. um, You might be like, why do we have to talk about this? Why, why, why does this question even matter? And uh, it's actually, but it's an important question. It really is an important question to our understanding of who Jesus is, to our, our Christology is the term. uh, and, And so we do have to spend some time with it. Um, quick little story, uh, about a month, well, last time, last month, sometime last month, um, Paul and I actually sat in on an ordination council in our district. So one of the younger pastors uh, was um, applying for his ministry credential, his ordination certificate. And uh, so that involves, in our denomination, that involves an all-day council. And he had written this long paper, 50, 60 pages, something like that. And now we were there to grill him on it. A bunch of pastors were there. And I had to pay attention because I was the scribe that day. And so I had to pay close attention. Uh, The question I'm exploring with you right now we spent a long time on this question with this young man because there was a, something, he was, he, his doctrine was fine. We ended up uh, approving him, but his, some of the stuff he wrote was a little fuzzy on this question. So we spent like 10 or 15 minutes just drilling down on this one issue. Why? Because it is important. It is an important issue. So what is it? What's this question? Uh, quest, the first question is, uh, so part one here, question number one is, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? Was it even possible? So here we are talking about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You say, wait a minute, is it even possible? Could Jesus Christ have sinned? Uh, After all, Jesus is God, right? We've spent quite a bit of time on that in the first three chapters of Luke, right? Jesus is God. And well, God can't sin, can he? Right? God cannot sin. James, uh, James chapter one, verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Uh, 1 John 3, 5, in him there is no sin. Uh, Dozens of verses in the Old Testament. God is holy. He's perfect. There's no sin in him. And so was it even possible, as as we look at this passage, for Jesus to sin? Was there any danger here? The answer may or may not surprise you. I don't know. But the answer, I believe, is actually no. No. (laughs) Jesus could not ultimately have sinned there in the wilderness. Uh, Why? Why? Why would I say that? Well, the reason goes back to what we've been saying about Jesus when we, when we looked at the incarnation of Christ, the, the miracle of the virgin birth uh, in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus is fully man and fully God. 
right? So he's, he's unique in all the universe in this sense. Uh, he's the only being with two natures in which he is fully those, both of those natures. And so Jesus is completely God, fully God, we say, and also fully man, which means he has all the characteristics and all the features of both. There is one exception, and it's a sin nature. But I think you can make, actually, I would make a biblical case that we're not supposed to have a sin nature either. A sin nature is not endemic to human beings. It's just part of the stain of the fall, and it will ultimately be removed. But so, so when Jesus is born, he doesn't have a sin nature, but in every other way, Jesus is fully human, but he's also in every way fully divine. He's, so he's fully man, fully, fully uh, God. Therefore, how does that bear on this question? Therefore, his divine nature keeps his human nature from falling. His divine nature uh, intrinsically prevents his human nature from falling. And the easiest way to explain this, I've kind of explained it in principle, I just want to read to you from a systematic theology book, and I'm actually going to quote Wayne Grudem. So those of you who've gone to Sunday school over the last three years for adults, uh, we've actually worked through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book, and so I thought, well, Grudem's a pretty good authority here in our church. And I actually had the privilege of study with him when I was in seminary, so that doubles his authority for me. Um, here's his explanation of this question, could Jesus have sinned? Just a few sentences. Grudem says, if Jesus as a person had sinned, involving both his human and divine natures in sin, then God himself would have sinned and he would have ceased to be God, right? So mind blown. If God, if God sinned, he would cease to be God because God cannot sin. Yet that's clearly impossible, Grudem says, because of the infinite holiness of God's nature. Therefore, if we're asking if it was actually possible for Jesus to have sinned, it seems we must conclude it was not possible. The union of his human and divine natures in one person prevented it. So could Jesus have sinned? No. Which immediately raises the second question. Well, then, was he tempted? Was Jesus truly tempted? If, if he was incapable of sinning, in what sense can we say that the temptation he experiences in this passage is real? Is it real? And the answer to this question is, yes, it's real. Oh, I forgot I didn't have that. Yes, yes, it's real. It's real. It's very, very real. So could he have sinned? No. Uh, was he tempted? Uh, yes, he was. And the reason for this, so here's the reason. Uh, the reason is that he experienced the temptation in his human nature. So fully man, fully God. So he experiences the temptation in his human nature, not his divine nature. His divine nature can't be tempted. Now, I know it's, it's kind of like one of these mystery things, right? It's like trying to explain the Trinity. Uh, his divine nature cannot be tempted. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, but humans can be tempted by evil even when we're not fallen, right? Jesus, like I said, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. You go back to the Garden of Eden. You go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have not sinned, but they're fully capable of being tempted. And that's what you have Jesus experiencing. You have Jesus experiencing a pre-fall, the burden, the intensity of, of, of temptation. And so Jesus could not sin because he's fully God, but he felt the full weight of temptation. That's what we would affirm. He felt the full weight of temptation in his human nature because he's fully human. He fully experienced what it's like. And some of you might remember about a year ago, 
Uh, we, when we studied through Hebrews, we came to this same issue from a different angle, and I made the case then that actually Jesus was more tempted than we are because he never gave into it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that again today, but we have the experience, right? So if you put a big plate of chocolate chip cookies up here, um, I'm going to give in, and I'm going to eat them eventually, right? I might be able to pull it off for a little while, but eventually I'm going to give in, and as soon as I do, the relief of the temptation is removed. Jesus never gave in to any temptation, and so that relief, you got to put it in quotes because giving into temptation hurts us, but the relief of giving into temptation, that's something he never experienced. So he actually fully experienced temptation. So could he have sinned? No, but was he fully tempted? Yes, he was. I wanted to give you an illustration of this, and I remember actually uh, this actually came, uh, Grudem shared this with us way back when I took systematic theology with him, and I remember making notes on this, and I put it in my files, uh, and, and so I wanted to share this picture of you, with you of what this would look like. What, it, what would it look like to not be able to sin, but to be fully tempted? What would that be like, and to, to bear that weight? <clears throat> imagine a swimmer, right? So imagine a swimmer, and she is determined, she has decided she's going to swim across the English Channel of a hard thing to do. She's going to swim across the English Channel. And so she does all of her training. She buys all the equipment. She makes all her preparations. She's ready to go. She gets in the water, and she starts swimming. And she does it. She swims all those miles across uh, the English Channel. She succeeds. She leaves from Dover and lands and wherever and over in France. She's done it. She swam the English Channel. Now, let's say she's also a sensible woman. She's a sensible woman and a little bit of a publicity hound. I mean, what good is it to swim the English Channel if nobody knows? And so she brings along with her a boat, a, a spotter. In that boat is actually not just one spotter, there's a whole camera crew. And they're live streaming her swim. And her coach is in there calling out cues from, from the boat. And her husband's there cheering her on. And maybe her best friend is there. And, and there, basically, there's this boatload of people who are coming along with her as she's swimming, and they're with her the whole way. Now, that swimmer, she crossed the channel on her own. Nobody swam any of the strokes for her. Every single stroke was her own work, her own effort, her own ability. However, the people on the boat were always there. They were always there, ready to help her. If she'd started to struggle, if she'd started to go under, if there was ever any danger, she wouldn't have been in danger. She wasn't in danger in that sense. They're there, ready to grab her, ready to rescue her. And so she's, she does it all in her own effort. She experiences the full weight of that, that endeavor. She does it herself, but she, she's always got that spotter boat helping her. And, and I would submit to you, that's a good way to think about what Jesus is experiencing here in the wilderness. He experiences the full temptation. And actually, not just in the wilderness. Uh, the, end of the, the, the end of the passage, verse 13, uh, says the devil ended every temptation and departed from him until an opportune time. He wasn't done. He was just done for now. Uh, we have every reason to believe and to know that Jesus was tempted all throughout his life. It wasn't just this one occasion. This one was just a special one. Uh, but so, so he experienced that to the fullness, and he overcame it only by his own human divine resources. So if I can put it this way, Jesus didn't cheat. He didn't cheat. He, he fully overcame the temptation uh, in his own ability. <clears throat> Why does that matter? 
Why does any of that matter? What difference does it make to you and me? Uh, well, before it actually influences the way we'll answer the second half here, but, but there are actually two differences, and I want to give them to you, and then we'll move on to the, to the three common temptations. It matters for two reasons, this whole idea that could he have sinned? No. Was he truly tempted? Yes. Two ways it matters. The first has to do with actually the second part, the weight of temptation that he experienced. The fact that Jesus felt temptation as strongly as we do, as really and truly as we do, it means he can sympathize with us. It means he can sympathize. He knows what it's like to be us. It goes to that he gets us thing. And, you know, he, he does get us. He gets us. He understands. That's what that the idea is there. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And that's why he's in such a great position to help us. Because he's been through it and overcome it, right? He's, he, you can help somebody when you've overcome it yourself or you're really good at it even yourself. Uh, you know, if you want help with your golf swing, you do not want me to help you. I know nothing about golf, right? You, you want someone who's good at golf if you want or at any skill. So it is here with temptation. And so this, this, the fact that he was truly, fully, wholly tempted, intensely tempted, means that he's now in the perfect position uh, to, to help us by the power of his Holy Spirit and by the, the, the identification of his Holy Spirit. And not, here, here's another piece of this, this first one. Not only can he help us, but he can, he can comfort us when we stumble. Because we will stumble. We do stumble, right? He, and he, he is ready to, to, to help us recover from that, to pick us up again. And, and this is true even though he never gave in. So Jesus doesn't know what it's like to give in to temptation, but he knows the heaviness and the intensity of it because he felt it himself. And so there's a sympathy there. There's a sympathy there. Uh, our God does not look on us with contempt when we sin. He looks on us with compassion when we sin. Right? And when we come to him in confession, he's, he's faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. And this is why he, he has compassion on us, not contempt. So that's one way this helps us. The other thing this does for us is it reinforces our confidence. It reinforces our confidence in Jesus. And here's what I mean. We come to temptation from a position of weakness, because we do have a sinful nature, right? We are beset with a sinful nature. Uh, Paul describes all that in, you know, in Romans chapter 7, that which I want to do, I do not do. The very thing I want to do, I am not able to do. Uh, and, and the thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. That, that whole chapter, uh, we're, we, we come to the temptations we face uh, from, from a position of weakness in that sense, uh, which is why it's so important to do what we talked about last week, right? The third tip was identify your own weaknesses. Identify your own vulnerabilities. Jesus... When Jesus came to temptation, he came from a position of strength. And that goes to this dual nature. Why? Because he was God. He's, he, he was and is God. And so he comes to, his, to, to, to the temptation uh, in the desert uh, from a position of strength, which really changes how you look at this passage. It's kind of funny. You, you, you can go and find you know, medieval art where they depict this passage the, you know, the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And a lot of the art that you'll see w will make Jesus look kind of weak, right? And he's, you know, I, I remember looking at one, he's kind of staring off into this, you know, and, uh, or, or, or he, you, we, a lot of times we, we just have a picture of Jesus being weak in this passage. I don't think Jesus is weak in this passage. He, he's strong. The temptation in the desert is a battle, right? It's like a cage match. You got these two guys and they're locked in battle out there in the wilderness for 40 days. And Jesus wins. 
Right? So you think about your, our, our, our Christology. Jesus, uh, the devil tries to go head to head with Jesus, and Jesus wins. And it's not even close. Only, you know, if you, if you forgive me the picture of a cage match, only one of them is going to come out all pummeled and bloody, and it isn't Jesus. It's the devil. He's the one who loses. Jesus is the one who wins. I said it before. Jesus didn't just squeak by temptation. He conquered temptation, which means, and, and, and let me say it this way, that's who's on our side. So as we think about coming to our own temptations and who's going to help us in that daily battle, that's who's on our side. It's not some fellow sinner, right? Somebody out, you know, you come to me, I'm going to like, yeah, that's hard. I messed up yesterday, you know, or yes, the morning or whatever. Uh, Jesus doesn't have that attitude. He, he, we, he, we come to him as the one who's strong, the perfect, sinless son of God and son of man. So that's that first part. Could he have sinned? Was he truly tempted? Now let's look at the actual temptations and kind of apply some of that and just look at the, what, what, what's at issue here. What's Jesus going through? And the first thing we need to say about this, uh, this passage is that each one of these is a test of faith. And I think that's important to see about these three temptations that we read about in this text. Each one is a test in some way or another of Jesus' faith, which is why I'm saying they're common. They're common because doubting God... Doubting God is, is the, is the red-hot core of temptation. That's really the core of the most, if not all, of the temptations we face. In some way or another, it's about doubt. It's about doubting God. Uh, that's what Satan is, is attempting to, to get Jesus to do. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt God. For example, temptation number one. The first temptation Jesus overcomes is the temptation to doubt God's provision. Doubt God's provision. That's what's at stake in, in the first temptation we read here. Uh, he is tempting, the devil is tempting Jesus to do far more than just satisfy his hunger. Right? This is about way more than just being hungry. This is doubt God's provision. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here. Let's look at the text. <clears throat> uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he'd just been baptized and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus is hungry, 40 days. And 40 nights have passed, and he's hungry. But, and, and so it's e very easy to just read this one as, as being about hunger, right? So the temptation to be hunger, hungry, which we, we all understand very well. But it's actually deeper than that. It's deeper than that because Satan is attempting to induce Jesus to depend on himself. Depend on yourself instead of depending on God. Don't provide for yourself instead of letting God provide for you. And here's how we know that. We know it because that's how Jesus understands it, right? That's what he quotes from. That's where he quotes from. He quotes from a passage where the Israelites have doubted God's provision. And um, I'll, I'll take you there. I mentioned last week uh, that each of the three quotes Jesus quotes in this passage are from Deuteronomy, and they're from early in Deuteronomy. One of them is from chapter 8, and the other two are from chapter 6. And uh, I will read this first one. So Deuteronomy, the, the, the first thing Jesus quotes comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. 
And I just want to read you verses 2 and 3 so you hear a little more of the context here. So Deuteronomy is Moses. It's actually kind of like the last words of Moses is how you can think of the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's, It's his final sermon before he sends the people in. And so it's after the 40 years of wandering. And he's doing a lot of reminding. He's reminding them of what they experienced. And so Moses says to the people, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. So these 40 years in the wilderness have been about testing testing us, Moses says, right? And there was a little bit of a sense of of discipline because of the whole Kadesh Barnea thing, which we won't go into. But Moses tells him in Deuteronomy, this has been about a testing of our faith, whether we would keep his commandments or not. Verse three, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, here comes the quote, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Moses reminds the Israelites that God gave them manna in the desert. Right? God fed you manna, he says. And he did that specifically to teach them to depend on God's provision. That was the lesson of the manna, according to Moses. God wanted to teach them, quote, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're going to depend on him to provide. Put his things first is is the idea. We actually have a New Testament version of that. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. It's the same idea as what you get there in Deuteronomy. And so the lesson of the manna is depend on God to provide. The lesson of temptation number one, depend on God to provide. Right? And so Satan is trying to get Jesus to break that. He's trying to get Jesus to take care of his own needs, his own way, rather than God's way. Jesus conquers it. Jesus overcomes that first temptation, even though God's provision is absent. Right? He's hungry. Right? He, he's hungry. He, he, he's gone 40 days without food, and he doesn't have a loaf of bread in his pocket. it's not there right now, but he refuses to give in to that doubt. We face this temptation, right? We face our own versions of this temptation all the time, the temptations to doubt God's provision. Uh, You know, sometimes we we lay awake at night, and and we, uh, we, we, these questions just race through our brains. You know, how are we going to pay for for, for school? How are we going to uh, be able to retire in some reasonable way? What, what happens if my company gets rid of me and lays me off? What if this drought keeps going and the rain doesn't come? What if, what if the new boss doesn't like me? What if uh, my, my contract runs out and they don't renew it? What if my health fails? What if one of my kids gets sick? And it just goes on and on and on, all of these areas. And those, every, the thing about that list I just made is every single one of those is legitimate. And every single one of those are things we have to pay attention to. So, so we're not, we're never, when we get to this principle, we're never saying God's call, telling us to neglect. You know, we have to pay attention to the work that we do and to saving reasonably and, and wisely and, and those sorts of things. We're, we're told to be good stewards. So, but, but here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes when being a good steward bleeds over into doubt. When, we, we, when it stops being about taking care of what God's called us to take care of, and we start questioning and doubting his provision for us. And a lot of times where that manifests is in these places where 
where we're, we, we do what the devil's trying to get Jesus to do here is to take care of ourselves our own way. We're going to do it our own way. And so maybe we work so hard to get to the top that we end up neglecting our families. Or maybe we, we worry so much, right? Just constantly just kind of churning with anxiety and worry, and we just walk around and we're grouchy and angry and tired all the time, taking it out on the people around us. Or, or maybe we get so focused on, on saving that saving turns into hoarding, and we cease to be known. We're not known as generous people. We're known as greedy people. That, that would be another manifestation of us. That would be a, a manifestation of, this, of giving in to this kind of temptation, to doubt God's provision. And so we have to, to watch that one. Watch out for, for these temptations. It comes in other ways, too. You know, I think, I think a lot of sexual temptation and giving into sexual sin falls into this same category where, where God says, you know, I've given you this person. And there's like, well, I, I, that's not enough, right? Or God, I've given you this season of singleness. And, well, that's not enough. I'm going to doubt your provision. And I'm going to take care of these, these desires, these needs I feel I have in some other way. That's another way we do it. So it's not only material. There's other ways we can doubt God's provision. And the, the lesson is to, to look to Jesus, ask for his help, and have him help us. Apply those tips we talked about last week and, and to resist that temptation like he did. So that's number one. Number two, second temptation we see uh, is that the devil is tempting Jesus and he overcomes the temptation to doubt God's plan. So doubt God's provision, doubt God's plan. That's what's at stake with number two. Let's uh, read it again. We've heard it already, but let's read it again. So this one is uh, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him, Jesus, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and serve, and him only shall you serve. All right, first thing I want to say about this part is that worshiping the devil is not the real temptation here. It isn't. I mean, obviously, worshiping the devil would be sinful, which is why Jesus rejects it so strongly and categorically. But what's, what's the temptation for Jesus? I would submit to you that worshiping the devil isn't really very tempting for Jesus. Jesus has seen, in fact, Jesus is the glory of God. So, so worshiping the devil, that, that's not tempting for Jesus. Here's the tempting part. The tempting part is what Jesus could gain in exchange for worshiping the devil. What he could gain was a shortcut. What he could gain, what the devil was offering, was an easy path to the kingship that Jesus so rightfully deserved. Right? Because the kingdoms of the world are his ultimately. They are going to be given to him. But what the devil is offering him is a shortcut. No rejection, no beating, no cross, none of all that pain and suffering, just instant glory. Skip the hard part, go straight to the good part. All you got to do is drop to your knees and worship me, the devil says. You might wonder, parenthetically, if the devil has the authority to do this. You're like, wait a minute, does, does he even have the ability to do this? And I think in the context of the passage, the, verses, the answer is yes. Yes, he does. Um, the, the Gospels, I think... This, we won't take the time to explore the nuances of it because we also know that God is sovereign over all the rulers of the earth, but there's a delegated authority here. 
That's why in the Gospels, at least three times, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Princes have authority, right? He's, a, he's the prince of this world. He has authority. Uh, there's a, Jesus tells the parable of the strong man, where the devil is the strong man, and he basically says, I have come to bind the strong man. He's got authority. He's got power. I've got to tie him up so he can't use it anymore. And so, so the devil isn't lying. He might be exaggerating. He might be twisting things here. I think he is. But the fundamental assertion, I will give you access to the rulership of all these kingdoms, that's true. He could follow through on that there in the desert. And so, yes, he's telling the truth, which means that the, the temptation is real, right? It's real from both sides. Satan could have gave it, and Jesus was experiencing it fully like we talked about before. And so the temptation is take a shortcut. Let's skip the cross. Let's skip the blood. Just win the world. Just do it this way. Win the world this way. Thankfully for us, Jesus resisted that because that would have imploded everything. There'd be no salvation for you and me if Jesus had given into that. There'd be nothing for you and me. And Jesus knew that, of course. He held fast. He stood firm. He knows there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. God's plan is the best plan. Uh, he does. How do, how do we know this is what's going on here? Uh, he, he goes to Israel again. Like I said, he's meditating on Deuteronomy. Uh, he draws from Israel's experience in the desert. Uh, this time it's chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, if you want to look it up later, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Uh, that passage is uh, a reference to Israel's idolatry, right? So worship, worship's at, at stake in that verse. He's talking, if you look at the chapter, he's talking about idolatry. Uh, Israel was repeatedly tempted in the wilderness journeys, as well as afterwards, Israel was repeatedly tempted to take the shortcut of idolatry. And, you know, one of the clearest examples, and it's the easy example because it's one most of us are familiar with, is the golden calf. Just think of the golden calf story. If you need to refresh on it, go back, read Exodus chapter 32. The golden calf is a spiritual shortcut. When they build that golden calf, they were tired of waiting for Moses, right? Moses had gone up the mountain. He said, I'm going up to meet with God. They could look and see God up there in the cloud with Moses, but it had been 40 days, and they got, I don't know if they were bored or impatient or whatever it was, but they end up saying, you know what, let's just make a God down here. And so they, get, they throw a bunch of gold into a pot, and out comes a calf, as, as Aaron says. It's a shortcut. It's a spiritual shortcut. They took matters into their own hand and made their own God their own way. We face the, <clears throat> the same temptation. We face the same kind of temptation. That's why I say it's, it's common. Take the shortcut. Get to God's best but don't do it his way. Get to God's best for you, but don't do it his way. Take the shortcut. <clears throat> I mentioned it before, sexual sin. Sexual sin's a shortcut, right? God says, uh, reserve it for marriage. Keep it within marriage. Uh, that's what's best for you as human beings. And we say, eh, I'm going to try this over here. I'm, I'm going to take a shortcut. Uh, materialism is a shortcut. I think that's a big one these days. God says, I want to satisfy you on the inside. I want to I be the, the one who fills you with meaning and your life with purpose. And we say, eh, I'll just buy more stuff. I'll just take care of myself that way. There's lots of others like that, but what they all share in common is they're short. We, we attempt to get to God's best, but not God's way. Try to get to God's best our own way. And the problem with those shortcuts, practically speaking, the problem is they don't work. It's not just that God's way is the best way. In the end, it's that God, God's way is the only way. His is the same as with Jesus, right? I mean, it's not like it was a viable alternative for Jesus to take Satan's option. It wouldn't have worked. He wouldn't 
have been able to save the world and reign for, uh, forever as he does now if he had taken that shortcut. And so God's way isn't just the best way. And so look to Jesus and have him help us. We need to have him help us to, to resist the temptation. Finally, number three, the third temptation is the temptation to doubt God's promises. And I think that's what's at stake with the third one. It's a, it's a temptation to doubt the promises, to doubt the word of God. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Satan is strategic. He's strategic in this passage. He learns from his mistakes, which is why he quotes scripture in the third temptation, right? So Jesus Jesus keeps coming at him with scripture. He's like, okay, I can do that. And, and so he, he, he adjusts his strategy and he quotes scripture to Jesus in temptation number three. Uh, we'll pick up in verse nine. And the devil took him to Jerusalem. And it's possible it was real. It's possible it's a, it's a vision. Sometimes people ask that question. Quite frankly, hard to tell from the text. I, I think it's more like it's a vision. But at any rate, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command and his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and jesus answered him it is said you shall not put the lord your god all right the devil says you want to quote scripture here's a scripture and he quotes it back to jesus it is written right jesus has been saying it is written it is written Satan says well here's here's something else that's written and he quotes it's psalm 91 you could go read it psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, and Satan quotes it pretty, pretty closely, pretty direct quote. Uh, he takes it out of context. <laughs> he takes it out of context, and he, he tweaks the wording. He changes the wording so it suits his own purposes, but he's quoting scripture. The devil's quoting scripture here, and specifically what he quotes is a promise. He quotes one of God's promises. God said he would command his angels to guard you, Jesus, because there's a messianic uh, applications in that psalm. God said he would command his angels to guard you. They'll lift, up, they'll lift you up in their hands so you won't even strike your foot against a stone. Is that true? Is that true, Jesus? Well, if it is, make him prove it. Make God prove it. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Let's see if he really, if he really loves you, if he really cares for you he'll really protect you. The wording is different, but it's the same line of attack that the devil took with Adam and Eve way, way back in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? Can you believe his word? Can you believe the things he says? That's what Satan's trying to do here to Jesus. He just said you're his son, right? The baptism, he said from the skies, he's your son. He said he's well pleased with you. Make him prove it. Make him prove it. For the third time, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy. This time it's still chapter six. Now it's verse 16. That verse says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall not test, put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You can read about the Massah episode in Exodus 17. So it's pretty early. It's actually before even the Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus chapter 17. Uh, this is the one when uh, the people got mad at Moses because there was no water, or one of the ones when they got mad at Moses because there was no water. And Moses answers them by saying, why are you putting the Lord to the test? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Exodus 17, Moses picks it up in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, and, and what happened there is God had promised them, right? And, and this was early on in the Exodus period. God had promised them that he would take care of them. And they had already seen him doing it. They'd seen him do the plagues. They'd seen him uh, spare their children when the, the children of the Egyptians were killed by the angel. Uh, they saw him open the Red Sea so they could cross and then close it again on the Egyptian army. They saw him provide the manna. That's actually the previous chapter. The manna and the quail from the skies. They'd seen all of this. They'd seen him keeping his promise. And now here comes one where, you know what? We're still, we still don't have what we want. They're, I'm thirsty. 
And instead of trusting his timing and his provision, instead of trusting his promise, they tested it. That's Moses' word. Moses says, you tested it with your complaining. Jesus here, he pulls all that out. He points back to it and he says, I'm not going to make the same mistake, devil. I'm not going to do it. I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Instead, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put my faith in him. I'm going to refuse to doubt his promise. This one is just as common as the first two. We experience this one too. We are also tempted to doubt God's promises by putting them to the test in, in different ways, testing his promises in different ways. Uh, now, of course, one way we, we do this is by complaining, right? Just straight one-to-one correlation with what the Israelites were doing. You know, we, we, it's the same thing. You know, yeah, you know, thanks for the salvation. Thanks for the blessings, Lord. That's all well and good, but what have you done for me lately? Right? Sometimes we, we get sucked into that kind of mindset. Uh, we doubt God's promises by complaining when he doesn't fulfill them the way we think he should. See, that's really what's at stake there. We, we, his promises are true, and he will keep his promises, but he doesn't always keep them the way we think he should keep his promises. He doesn't always do them on our terms. He always does them on his terms. And so that's one way we can doubt his promises. It's just having a, a bitter complaining spirit, kind of complaining against his, his provision, against his plan, against the things that he's doing in our life. Other times, though, and, and, and actually the one with the devil is more in this category, other times this temptation is, is more sneaky. It actually comes to us in a trickier form. And, and, and I say it's sneaky because it sounds spiritual, right? What the devil poses to Jesus sounds very spiritual, right? Jesus, what a spectacular miracle this will be. Go ahead, climb up to the highest point in the temple, right? So the city of Jerusalem is, is on a high spot and the temple is a high spot, is the high spot in the city. Climb up to the highest point in the city and, and do, a, do a dive, right? Jump off and, and watch him save you. And what a spectacular, what a spiritual thing that will be. What a spectacular thing that will be. Right? And, and, and so it sounds spiritual. It, it, we, we can even frame it, sometimes we do this, we, we frame it as stepping out in faith, when in reality we are testing God with some form of disobedience, which is really what that would have been for Jesus. So it sounds like it's faith, we present it as faith, but the reality is that it's a test. Yes, I know she's not a believer, but I'm going to date her anyway, right? I'm, I'm, I have faith. I have faith God will work it all out. He'll, he'll make him a Christian or make her a Christian, that person that I know I shouldn't be yoked with, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in tomorrow. I'm going to tell my boss what I really think. I'm, I'm just sick of the way he bosses me around. And you know what? If I get fired, well, I have faith. God, God will cover it for me. God will, God will give me another job somehow or other if I go in there and give him a piece of my mind. Yeah, I know we shouldn't be spending all this money. <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's living beyond our means. We can't really afford that vacation, that car, that expensive new gadget. But I have faith. I have faith. I just know God's going to provide some way or another. He's going to find some way to, to pay these credit card bills I'm running up. It sounds like faith. We present it sometimes as faith, but in reality, it's doubt. You say, how is that doubt? It's doubt because it's testing God's promises by demanding that he keep them the way we think he should keep them rather than, than what he's, he's working out in our lives. And so instead of being obedient with our money or our relationships or whatever else it might be, we, we, we disobey. And then we, we expect him to to cover the trouble. That's a temptation. It's a form of doubting God's promises. The good news is Jesus overcame this one. If we look to him, he'll help us. He'll help us with this one as well. Uh, he, and so our, our, our job is to trust his promises and to ask him to help us trust his promises, just like he did. I wanted to close with one last observation uh, about temptation. And, and it actually goes back to those, uh, those scratch tickets I told you about at the beginning. Uh, like I said, the, the woman in the store, in the story I was telling you about, she, she pretty easily figured it out. She, she was, it was an easy temptation 
for her to overcome. She didn't want to gamble. She didn't want to steal. Uh, she just gave them back. And there's no endorsement here of scratch tickets, by the way. It's a bad idea. Uh, but, but it was an easy temptation for her to overcome. What she didn't know at the time, she learned later, but what she didn't know at the time was that the tickets were worthless anyway. They were worthless. Apparently, that's how it works with those things. Uh, the tickets have to be activated when they're sold. And, and you know, there's some computer formula or whatever it's done, but the store that has the rights to them has to activate them. And until they're activated, they're worthless. They're just colorful pieces of cardboard. That's all they are until that happens. And so if she'd started scratching away and she'd found one that won thousands of dollars, it would have been, well, she probably would have gotten in trouble for stealing, but they were worthless. They were worthless. And I was thinking that's a pretty good picture of, of these things that we're tempted by. That's a pretty good picture of sin actually. It's worthless. It's, it's shiny. It looks good, you know, colored, colored piece of cardboard with all the things they put on those things to try to make people buy them. But, but in comparison to Jesus, in comparison to the good things God wants to do in our lives and that he has in store for us, in comparison, those sinful things we're tempted by are worthless. They truly have no value compared to him. And that can motivate us as well.